Uh, For the rest of you, uh, if you would flip over in your worship folder, we're going to be looking at Psalm 7 this morning. Um, Just a few words of context here. Um, If you'll notice the page past that, then titled this sermon, Lament of a Clear Conscience. And if you remember last week, then I I titled this title of that sermon, Lament of a Heavy Conscience. And this, so I'm kind of playing off of that idea. And one of the reasons why we are going through these psalms in sequence um, during the summertime is because what Charles has already said is they force us to deal with psalms that we might not ordinarily deal with. Um, We all have psalms that are uh, precious to us and that we really like uh, for one reason or another. And there are also a bunch of those that we almost never read and in some ways don't know what to do with. So this is... This is one of the ways to cover um, the full counsel of God as he has given to us in the Psalms. But one of the interesting things that comes out of this is we get to compare one against the other. And we see that these Psalms are actually given often to particular circumstances uh, that might be facing you and that might be facing another member of the people of God, of the congregation. And so we're given tools uh, to interact with these. And we saw last week um, in Psalm 6 that it was particularly geared towards a time when David had a heavy conscience. He was bearing the hurt from his own sin. And then the very next psalm, then David is again lamenting, but he's claiming his own righteousness. And he is asking God to stand up um, and to be his defender on his behalf um, on his own righteousness. So we get, to, we get to see the opposite side of this, what it means to lament um, when our conscience is clear. Um, and we see that um, um, we feel that we have been wronged uh, by somebody else unjustly. Uh, if you'll look at the title of this, um, it says, this is a Shigayon of David. I have, no one knows what that means. That's, that just means it's some kind of a psalm or it's kind of a song, uh, type of song that he was singing. Uh, I have to say it appears that David was getting shiggy with it. Um, I could not resist. Um, but he's saying this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, who was a Benjamite. And we don't know who Cush was, and we don't know the exact situation that this was written into. We know that, of course, Cush was a Benjamite, which is the tribe that Saul came from. And looking at the content of this psalm, it, it becomes apparent that David feels like he has been slandered. That because of the words of this guy, some untruths about him have been passed around um, and have put him in a very... Um, uh, a hurtful and uh, fragile uh, situation. So this is this kind of shapes. In some ways, it doesn't matter exactly what the situation was, but we are given those these tools to see a, a context that we might see our own lives through when we experience this kind of um, um, slander or, or issues like that uh, in our own lives. So that's all for introduction. Uh, let's go to the psalm and read it, and I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust." Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. 
The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you be with us and guide us this morning? Be with my words, make them true and helpful and glorifying to you. And would you open up all of our hearts that we might be able to see ourselves in you clearly, uh, that you would open us up, that we could receive uh, what you have for us to be changed and to be encouraged and built up in your way. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of my first experiences in leadership was kind of a doozy. I was, during my college years, um, worked at a summer camp and, and, and somehow ended up as the head boy counselor of all the other uh, counselors. There were like a dozen college-age uh, boys that I was in charge of, in charge of being college-age boy myself. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the walkie-talkie and the privileges that came with that position and uh, enjoyed myself for about half of the summer until... I got word that my whole staff uh, wanted a meeting with the director and had basically planned a coup um, to get him out of there. Um, And behind, there was a lot going on behind the scenes. There was, you know, some, there was some difficulty with the board. There was some difficulty with personalities. Um, um, Some things weren't operating the way they should because of that. But in the darkness and in isolation, my whole staff together had, at the prompting of just a few members, come, came up with a few narratives of their own about what was going on. And this is, we all do this in some ways, but um, I, I, this is free. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the lessons just about leadership. This is why it's important to have a close relationship with your staff. Because if you try to lead them from afar, then you have no idea what is going on and there is not a relationship of trust there and things might be happening that you're not even aware of. Um, but they, they gave word to me that they had had enough. Um, this narrative had grown and grown and grown. And in the middle of the summer, we had a, a climactic meeting and a lot of grievances were aired. And the director ended up being um, let go because of this. There was a 95 theses type grievance nailed to one of the doors of the of one of the cabins. Um, and when when I step back and think about it, like it was certainly a messy situation where there was wrong all around. But what we had was there was a narrative that had been built about one person out of a lack of understanding of what was really going on. And in the end, there were a few unhappy college kids that ended up um, 
getting a guy fired and his whole family um, 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 had to move away uh, because of this. Uh, it was very hurtful. And it was in the middle of all this chaos that Lauren and I met and fell in love <laughs> uh, in, in the wake of it all. Um, but I just I say that as an illustration. And I, I think that um, if you've been in, in leadership in some type, then you might have seen this happen at some kind of experience. If you've just been a person, uh, you have likely seen this too. That our reputations are actually quite fragile. Uh, we don't have as much control over our reputations as we might like to think um, that we do. Um, and it is easy for narratives to be written, um, to be written about us uh, without adequate, um, adequate knowledge. Um, it is very easy to uh, posture uh, for something in particular and to degrade uh, other people in order to raise up our own platform. Any, uh, any of these things. These happen every single day um, in big ways and in little ways in our lives. And uh, slander hurts. Like it, it is a, a dehumanizing, painful thing um, to feel like you have been slandered and that um, untruths have been spread about you. Uh, this can happen in all kinds of ways. They can be outright lies. Um, often they come in the form of partial truths, uh, like a crafting of a narrative in order to fit um, um, somebody's agenda, uh, that would be a kind of, a kind of slander. Uh, there can be guilt by association. Um, so, you know, if you say something and they're like, oh, you're one of those people, um, that's a kind of slander. Um, there are characterizations um, that are a kind of slander and that can give, they can present a public persona of us to the world that is not true, um, not true to us. And this is the kind of thing that really happens in life. And one of the things about the Bible and one of the things about the Psalms is that it doesn't mince words about some of these things. It actually gives us these words and it gives us um, tools in order to process and deal with these things in a helpful way. Because we are all dealing with them uh, in one way or not. Um, some of us are hyper-anxious because of the threat of, of losing our reputations when we feel they are fragile. I mean, you can think about the number of things that you have posted or said publicly that it, was, it had more to do with your own reputation than it did with anything else. Um, how much of our motivation is bent in crafting an image um, before other people? That this is because when we feel that how fragile our reputations are, then that can kick something up in us and cause us to work very, very hard. Um, some of us retreat when we have been hurt by people. Uh, some of us go to eat a lot or drink a lot in some way to try to remove ourselves from the situation, to try to cope uh, with the sense of the fragility of our own reputations. And it is in that that God gives us these words. And I, I want us to, to really, as we do, think about where we are and how this um, impacts our own lives, uh, because it's from that place that we'll be able to receive um, what is hope, I think. One of the most fascinating things about this psalm is not the, the reality that slander is a thing, but the fact that David ends this uh, with a posture of thanksgiving. Um, it's not even, he starts with God as his refuge, but he doesn't even stay there. He will actually end this psalm from a posture of thanksgiving, of glad uh, for who he is and what he has been given by God. 
Um, and I think that's something for us to pay attention to and to keep in mind. So let's, how does God help us deal with this? I, I think that as we just follow through this psalm, it is, it is, we can summarize it by asking three questions. And the first part is asking the question of who am I? Um, the one who is um, saying this song, so that could be us, you know, from our vantage point. Uh, the middle of the psalm then is asking, then who is God by comparison? And then we're going to end with what outcomes can we expect in light of who God is. So if you look here in the first two verses, um, David is really taking stock of who he is and what is the situation he's in. He says, Lord, my God, and you do I take refuge? Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So he is acknowledging the presence of pursuers and his need of deliverance. And then he says, lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces uh, with none to deliver. Uh, this might sound a little melodramatic to you. Um, I, you can just, you know, if my reputation is being slandered and is like a lion tearing my soul apart. Um, but I, I think that he is, I mean, he's using very creative and uh, uh, pictures of language to describe um, something that is real. That slander is actually a very dehumanizing thing. It's like it creates two versions of ourselves, like the version that we know ourselves and the other version that's passed around um, to other people uh, publicly. Like it, it, it's taking away our own agency and our own personhood. Um, it's splitting our inner and outer self. Um, it discounts our character, uh, the complexity of our story, our vantage point um, for where we're coming from, all of those things and reduces us to one particular narrative. Um, as it more than hurts. Like the slander is something that can cut very, very deep. It can stri- really strike at the heart of who we are. And David goes right there and he acknowledges these things that I, because of these things being said, that I am undone. And I don't have the faculties in me in order to handle this situation on my own, and I need help. I am a weak and a fragile person in the, fake, in the face of what I am facing. And this is actually a very old idea, I think. Um, you know, I've mentioned this several times over um, in different subjects, but I don't think it's any accident in the Garden of Eden, um, the very last, the pinnacle of creation is when Adam and Eve stood before each other and they were naked and they were not ashamed. And this has more to do with just a physical thing, is that there was no fear of any harm that could come from the other person. And the very first thing that happens after sin comes into the world is they go and they hide and they get close. It's like there is a knowledge now that there is a potential in any, even the closest relationship that there can be hurt. Not only can I hurt in this relationship, but I can also be hurt by this relationship. And so this case of slander, it is a very old thing that has been there from the very beginning that has just given birth um, in this particular way. Uh, So how does David deal with this? Uh, He follows up this of just acknowledging who he is. Um, He says, like, God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, and if I have repaid my friend with evil, you know, done all these things, then uh, let my enemy pursue me and overtake it. It's like he has taken the opportunity to look inside himself and he is putting himself under a self-examination to what is his role here um, in this story. He examines himself. 
And I'll give you an illustration. Um, while we were in seminary, uh, I used to actually like washing dishes uh, because it was ever that you know we had young children at the time. Um, it was kind of chaotic in our house and a lot of out of control, and it was something tangible I could do and get done and see progress. And it was loud enough that I couldn't hear anything else in the house. So I would be in my own little world um, doing the dishes. But if if that's you, you also kind of know when you're just you start to think when you're doing something, and all these narratives start coming into your head. And one of those for me always would be, I'm doing dishes by myself. I'm the only one doing dishes right now. Lauren is not doing dishes right now. Why am I the only one doing dishes right now? She must think that I don't do enough around here, the kind of thing. She must um, take me for granted and have no respect for what I'm doing. And I can remember thinking these things and getting all up in a huff about what she's thinking about me and putting the towel down and marching out and she was there with a baby feeding it surrounded by a pile of laundry doing just a ton of things at the same time and it was heart piercing (laughs) because here I had made up all of these narratives about how I was being mistreated when in reality it was me. It was me the one who was doing the mistreating. She was doing exactly what she she was supposed to do. And so David, what this psalms like this do is they are inviting this kind of self-examination. When we feel hurt, to go in there and to evaluate what is going on inside of my heart. What are the things I feel and where are they actually coming from? But in David's case, he can actually look into his life and say that I have not done what these people have said that I have done. And he actually pleads to God on behalf of his own righteousness that he would rise up and judge on his behalf. And if you have grown up in a reform circle, in a Christian family, there, you know, if, if you've understood a doctrine of sin, that might make you cringe just a little bit. Like, haven't I learned since I was a baby that I don't have righteousness from my own that I can offer? And... You know, in the hypocrisy that I know that is present in my life in a lot of ways, is this not just inviting judgment back onto my head too? How does David do this? And I think it's important to notice that David is talking into a particular situation. He is not claiming to be righteous in every way. He is not claiming to be deserving of God's unmerited favor. But in a very granular Way as he is just looking at the events of his life, he can say that he has not done this, that he has actually been slandered. And that is a possible thing in life. We are all sinful all the time and we hurt people. And we are also all sinned against at many times. People do hurtful things to us. And we have to have tools. And God actually gives us an acknowledgement that that is true, that that sometimes is the case, and he is giving us tools in order to deal with it. So where does that leave David? So he's asking this question, who is he? He's acknowledging his hurt. He has gone through this process of self-examination. But 
that leads to the second question. That's a good start, but it doesn't help. Acknowledging the problem sometimes can only make it worse. And so what he does there is he makes an interesting turn of logic in that he stops looking at himself and he starts looking at God um, and asking the question, so who is God in comparison to me? And if you look at verses 6 and 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, and lift, up, lift yourself up against the fury of your enemies. And he's re- depicting him of over the assemblies of the peoples is where God would be the judge, where he would reign, that he would return over it. Where do you, what do you think David thinks is up with God? He thinks he's asleep. Because he doesn't see any actual tangible help coming into his life, the conclusion is that he must be asleep. He can't be paying attention if I am suffering in this way at the hands of other people. And he leans into that and he calls him to rise up and say, where are you? Uh, What are you doing here? But it is in going there that he starts to move on and he starts to reflect further, not on just the events that he sees God up to in his life, but general truths about who God is. It's like he starts to rehearse, what are these things that I actually know to be true about God? And he says that he is the judge of all peoples. So he is not just the judge of me, but he is, or even Israel, he is the judge of all people everywhere. And when I need to make just a teaching moment to make this clear. When we think of the word judge, we think of it in a, a purely punitive sense. It's like if you steal something, a judge says you have to go and serve this many years in prison as payment for that. And when the Bible talks about God as judge, it is a much a bigger picture and is much more nuanced. That he is the one who sets things right. He is described, he is the one who raises up the lowly and he is the one who brings down the wicked. And that God, his salvation and his, uh, his character as a redeemer, uh, these are all bound up in what it means by God as the judge. That he is the one who is right and he is the one who executes what is right for all people. Uh, he goes on and he, he remembers, he says, Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, that you may establish your righteousness. The grander purposes, what is God's purpose in the world? What is in the end? What, what are his intentions? Is that the evil would come to an end and that his righteousness may be established. Um, he's the one who tests minds and hearts. He sees everything that happens. He knows what is going on inside. He said, My shield is with God. He's, it is in his character to save the upright in heart, not the sinless, but those who are faithful inside of his covenant, who have entrusted themselves to him, um, that he is the one to save, that he is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day, which is a powerful statement because where David feels like he is asleep, where God is asleep, and he feels the wounds of those that have cast upon him. Through his reflections of God as the righteous judge, he is able to come and see that God actually feels far more than I do every day. He is so intimately connected with his people, what goes on, that he feels the hurt that we feel. If he is slow to act, it is not because he doesn't know It is not because he doesn't care. It is not because he is indifferent and doesn't feel the pain. David, looking into God's character, he can go nowhere else but to see that God knows and he is powerful 
and he is in charge, and he feels the pain, and he cares in a very, very deep way. This is attested all over the Bible. And in that verse in 2 Peter 3, then uh, it's a famous verse. He talks about God's slowness. Uh, it's not slowness like we see slowness. He's not slow to fulfill his promises. But it is God's desire that he's patient, that many would repent, and that many would come back to him. There is a method to God's madness that he is working behind the scenes. But that's good. So now we have who am I and we have this comparison to who is God um, to recalibrating how we're thinking about the situation. But then we're coming to the end and this is where the money is. Like, I think this is the key question. In light of those things, what outcomes can I expect? What tangible hope uh, can I expect in my life in light of what is done? And first, here in verses 12 through 16, Um, He starts describing general principles of what he knows. Uh, Some of them are hard. Uh, Like in verse 12, he says, If a man does not repent, um, then God will wet his sword. That God is so concerned about righteousness that he cannot let evil stay. That he is not so unjust that he can allow injustice to flourish and not do anything about it. That the God who feels indignation every day that it is, he takes it personally. And he will personally oversee all the way to the end that what is right um, is accomplished. What is right is what is set. He has a personal involvement and there's a personal expectation that we can have of God. And on the one hand, this is sobering to us. Again, as we are seeing this psalm as molding the people of God, it is molding us to value and to thirst for a community um, that uh, treats each other according to the truth and who doesn't tolerate slander, who uses our words to communicate in love. But he goes on to there, and then he starts describing natural consequences, that the nature of evil is that it is not a cheat code that we can use in order to get a better place in life. It might seem like that at some times, but it acts, the nature of evil is that it reproduces itself into more and more evil. And that you know, the, the pit that is dug is a pit that it will eventually come back on tops of our, top of our own head. There are natural consequences here as well that God wants us to be aware of. And he wants us to take uh, very, very seriously. But then we get here to the end. And David says, knowing these things, I will give to the Lord the thanks that is due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And again, he is talking about God being the righteous judge. And I think to get this, first we need to zoom out a couple of layers. First we need to remember who David is, and we need to remember who his position is within the people of God. But again, because this gets very messy, As soon as we start thinking about the justice of God, it is a relief on one hand, and it is very sobering on the other hand. It can kind of make us feel icky. We know the hypocrisy that exists in our own heart. We know how we have been wronged, and then our mind just races on ways to get back at that person, the things to say if we could just bump into them and say this, then it would cut them to the core, and then all would be right We know how that works, and we know how complicated that gets in our own hearts. But David is speaking not just to anybody, but he is speaking to his covenant God. He is speaking to the God that has redeemed this people out of bondage, 
out of slavery and he has put his own name on top of this people. That's who the people of Israel were. They were the people who graciously bore the name of God so that they could be a light to the nations. That they were the ones who, who God graciously dealt, dwelt with in the middle as a sign of who God is and what his character is. And that the God who had guaranteed that he would bring all things to right has filtered that righteousness through not just a general uh, posture of judgment, but of a personal relationship that he has established with his people. God has invested himself personally with Israel. He is not far away, but he has taken that and he has made it near. And so David is filtering through this, not just who God is generally, but who God has made himself to be, what he has given the people of Israel, and he has given himself them his own name. He has given them his personhood, uh, the, the closeness to him. And of course, if we zoom back even further... This is how, when we look at these psalms uh, through the lens of Jesus and who Jesus was, Jesus is the personal manifestation of God's righteousness on earth. You know, we might think about in one way, he is the one who lived righteousness and who gives righteousness as a gift. But he is also the one who came to deal with sin in its totality, in our own sin and the sin of others. He is the one who came to take abuse on our behalf, so he could have deep and meaningful fellowship and closeness with those who have been hurt. That's why we read uh, this verse, these verses earlier from, um, where was it, First Peter chapter 2, uh, which describes Christ what he did, that Christ um, was reviled, and he did not revile in return, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges, judges justly. To his Father in heaven. I, I was talking about this to Lauren um, last night, and I think she put it really, really well. That the reason why uh, Jesus could do that is because Jesus knew exactly who he was. There was nothing that could be said about him by anybody that would unsettle his knowledge of who he was in himself and in the relationship that he stood with before his God. And so he walked his road with pain, but also with confidence. And what we have in the gospel is Jesus given to us as a gift. Jesus has put his name on each one of us. And he knows exactly who you are. And one of the reasons why we have these things is because even in that situation of being slandered, he wants you to know and to remember exactly who you are. And it is not because of your righteousness. It is not because anything that is to do with you. It is because he has entrusted himself to you as a gift. He is able to sort out the complications. He knows how to deal with the mess between our own mess and the mess of those received. But through it all, he has so intimately given himself to us there that we actually have reason to be thankful. We walk this road not alone, but with our Savior. 
We walk in a unique fellowship to him who was also slandered. And we walk with the hope of the resurrection, that even through these hardships, that they don't define the story. It is resurrection from the dead that finds the story. And God is able to work these things in that way to the end. And so we are able to entrust the most tender and hurtful parts of our hearts, even the ones we don't understand, to him. And he is able to take it. Uh, just one more illustration to close. Every time my father-in-law calls Lauren, then he, she picks up the phone and he says, is this my daughter who I love? And she says, yes, oh, daddy of mine. <laughs> it's like a thing. Uh, but that's what God wants you to know. Do you remember who you are? In the middle of what you're facing, do you remember who you are and who is with you? And as you sit with him and dwell with him, maybe you can let your heart loosen up a little bit to be able to return to him thanks and joy that your heart actually craves. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, you know us more deeply than we know ourselves. You know how fragile we are. Uh, You know where we are struggling. Uh, You know where we desire revenge. Uh, You know where we are beaten down and crushed. In your mercy, would you meet us there? Would you give us hope and encouragement through your word today uh, that we would indeed remember who we are, even as we leave here and throughout this week? In Jesus' name, amen.